the Lord is the protector of my soul, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Dear, dear friends, we uh, read in the Gospel today how our, our Lord wept. Uh, what a beautiful, uh, amazing reality that God in, in the flesh weeps. And he weeps out of love for uh, his people who were blind in their heart and mind. And this was because they, they didn't recognize the grace, the grace that, that was offered to them. Uh, a grace that they should have been prepared to receive. But they did not. They did not grasp what was in their midst. And this is because they, they could not judge rightly. Uh, and uh, that's what I spoke to you about in my last sermon on the importance of judging rightly. And if they could not judge rightly, it was because they did not think rightly. Because our judgments as such, they are uh, a logical consequence of, of the way we think, uh, our thoughts. And our Lord himself gives an entire parable on, on the importance of thinking correctly, uh, because if we don't think correctly, then he says we will make the wrong judgments. And those judgments will have eternal consequences. And we see this in the parable you know very well, which I will just read uh, briefly. The parable of the sower and the seed. And you, you hear it year in, year out. But it's quite profound as regards uh, its impact for us in our thoughts. The sower went out to sow his seed. And he sowed, and some fell upon the wayside, and was trodden down, and the fowl of the air devoured it. And other, some fell upon the rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And other, some fell among thorns, and the thorns growing up with it choked it. And other, some fell upon good ground, and being sprung up, yielded a fruit a hundredfold. Saying these things, he cried out, and he, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him what this parable might be. To whom he said, To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and they that by, uh, by the wayside are they that hear it, and then the devil comes and takes the word out of their heart, lest believing they should be saved. Now they upon the rock are they who when they have heard receive the word with joy and these have no root for they believe for a while and in the time of temptation they fall away and that which fell among thorns are they who have heard and going their way are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life and yield no fruit but uh, uh, that on the good ground are they who in a good and perfect heart hearing the word keep it and bring forth fruit in patience. You know, it's always struck me, the uh, words of our Lord, particularly the words where our Lord says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He has eyes to see, let him see. Those words have always struck me because we all have ears to hear. We have all eyes to see. But what our Lord is getting at, in seeing, it's as though we didn't see the same thing. In hearing, it's as though we didn't hear the same thing. And why is that? Well, the reason is because we filter uh, the Word of God according to our own bias. We only hear what we want to hear. And you see this with people in your, in your conversations with them. 
even as a priest, you, you give a sermon and often I'm amazed by what people think I said as opposed to what I actually did say. Um, because they filter it by their own bias, what they want to hear as opposed to what they should have heard and what they should have understood. And this is what took place in the time of our Lord. Our, Lord, our Lord's words are very clear. We have some of them, only a few of them, preserved for us in the Gospels. But they're very clear. And yet it's as though hearing they did not hear. The prophet Ezekiel expounds on this point where God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have uh, eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. So, in other words, why do they not hear? Why do they not see? Because of the rebellion. Rebellion that's in their hearts. The perversion that's in their hearts makes it very difficult for them to be able to hear, to take in the word of God. And our Lord in the parable points out three main realities. First, of course, there is the devil. But the devil can only tempt. The devil cannot force or oblige us to uh, accept uh, his temptation. But the devil will, will be there to impact as much damage as he can uh, on the soul so as to rob it, to rob it of uh, God's grace. Uh, we are born to combat in this life and there are going to be struggles for us. The gospel is not, as the Protestants say, a, a once believed and you're saved. It's not. It's a struggle. It's a battle. To live out the word of God, it's going to be a struggle for us. Uh, remember, in the very first temptation that our Lord is given in the desert by the devil, the devil doesn't tempt our Lord to do something evil. He simply tells him, change these stones into bread. And that's a, that's a legitimate thing. It's a good thing to eat bread. Uh, he's not asking our Lord to do something sinful, but he's trying to distract our Lord from continuing the good that he is doing in prayer and fasting. And this, this is what the devil and the world hold out to us today. They hold out to us so many distractions. And today, you know, we have so many of them in the form of our, our technology, iPhone, iPad, the internet. They are, they are not sinful in themselves, but in what, they, in what they lead us to do, that is leading us away from our Lord by distraction, they lead us uh, to achieve the same end, to be distracted. The devil can't make you sin. He makes you busy in things that really are not what God expects of us. They are secondary things. We're not. Most people don't use the internet to broaden and deepen their knowledge of our Lord, the faith. They're just distracted. They scroll their whole life away. Uh, you know, um, uh, recently a friend, uh, he, was, he was complaining uh, in front of another person who I know very well. He's complaining that Today, everyone's distracted with the iPhone, the iPad, the internet, and they don't, they don't visit other people. And my other friend looked at this person and said, oh, really? So when was the last time you went and visited somebody? Well, they were stumped, and that's the reality. We can, we can complain about the state of affairs, but what are we, we going to do about it? Has, has the technological advancements uh, made us better people? Uh, I'm not convinced it has, and we'll see about this uh, shortly. But the point that our Lord makes is very clear, that we are convinced that we are here on earth for a comfortable life. 
Now they that upon the rock are they who hear uh, and receive the word with joy. And these have no root, for they believe for a while, and in time of temptation they fall away. When there's difficulties, when there's trials, we start to question either the will of God or the plan of God, or uh, we choose something which is more convenient, more comfortable uh, than the struggle, than the battle which is before us. And sometimes our battles are often, more often than not, really just with our own selves. We don't become great. No one becomes a devil overnight and no one becomes a saint overnight. We become a devil in stages, slowly and slowly. Slowly and slowly we begin to fall away. Become a saint, slowly and slowly. Cooperating with God's grace and the practice of virtue. None of them are instant realities. Anything that is instant is fake. It's superficial. It's not real. It's a lifelong struggle to become a saint. And it's a a lot of hard work and effort to become wicked. Uh, And if we only put that same amount of energy, time, money, effort into our wickedness as we did into becoming a saint, we become great saints. Great saints, that's for sure. The sower, God, is very generous. God didn't have to give us his word. God didn't have to give us the gospel. But he does. And not only does he give us the gospel, he gave us his very self. And, you know, often it's very interesting how many people I meet, uh, particularly amongst the non-Catholics recently, a Muslim said, surely you don't want me to believe that God would send his son and have him killed. Would you send your son and have him killed? I said, no, I wouldn't. God would. God would do that. God is generous. God would... uh, he spared the son of Abraham which you're familiar with as a Muslim but God didn't spare his own son me and you, we wouldn't do that God is not stingy like us God is generous he gives beyond comprehension Uh, look at all the miracles our Lord worked in the gospel he didn't have to do all that he went the extra mile out of love for us today he's weeping our Lord could have taken uh, perhaps the approach that we take very often uh, uh, the poor people in the world that's their bad luck, they're wicked uh, have an indifferent attitude, the poor modernists in the church uh, that's their bad luck me, I'm lucky and uh, I'm fantastic, our Lord wept for these people, our Lord loved them our Lord wept for them uh, and he went even, uh, he wept for them and then he would die for them, he didn't just weep for them he would die for them This is the extent of the goodness of God. God is a generous giver. But the devil, on the contrary, he's a thief. He comes to rob us of the grace of God. To rob us of our joy, of our faith. And to a greater or lesser extent, he's succeeded in this in the modern world. He's robbed uh, many of the faith. Robbed them of the joy. We see a culture of misery, of, of death, of emptiness. The devil has succeeded to a greater or lesser extent. You know, we, we speak about the internet. And, and the sad reality of the internet is this. Today, as, we, as I'm giving this sermon, there's about, about 1.3 billion Catholics in the world. Catholics. I'm not talking about Protestants or Christians or whatever. Uh, I'm talking about Catholics, the only true religion in the world. And even if you just want to say maybe half of them are not practicing their faith. But, so then we've still got quite a vast number, millions of Catholics in the world. 
And if we, we say that the internet is, is a tool, why are the Catholics not using the internet to evangelize their neighbor? Perhaps because they don't care. What a great tool we can use, a powerful tool at our disposal. No, no one, the, the internet should be flooded with the Catholic faith, it should be flooded such that no one can escape it. Like today, it's flooded with perversion, immorality, people trying to sell you stuff. Well, you, even if you, you're not looking for it, it's in your face with all these pop-ups and things. Well, how come we're not doing that? How come we're not flooding the world with the Catholic faith? We're not sharing the faith. You know, St. Paul and all the saints could have said the same, how they were beaten and, and, uh, and uh, uh, stoned and spat upon and despised because they... They went out and preached the gospel. And what are we going to say? What did we suffer for the gospel? Nothing. And what do we care? Even less than nothing. That's the tragedy of the present situation. And that's why, because our thoughts, our thoughts are no different than the pagans out there. We just got a badge that I go to church, I'm a Catholic, that's all. And that badge is not worth anything if it's not lived. But why are we not flooding? And, you know, look, there are people out there who are, they, I mean, again, we're not even asking you saying be original. All you've got to do is what a lot of these good, wise people do. They just read the lives of the saints, put them on audio, and they put them out there. Uh, they're not trying to be original. You don't have to be original. I'm not original in anything I say to you. I'm just handing on what I received. That's all they're doing. A lot of them are promoting the literature, the artwork, the beauty of the Catholic Church, beautiful pictures of a Catholic Church. They'll put them online. Great. That's what we should be doing. Everything of the Catholic Church, the artwork, the beautiful churches, the buildings, uh, sharing them, promoting them, as far and wide, flooding the internet with beauty, goodness, truth, holiness, grace, wisdom, even if it's just a, a snippet of the gospel each day. Uh, so many good Catholics do that, but they're not even a drop in the ocean compared to the number of Catholics there are out there, and not even a drop in the ocean compared to the, the perversion that's out there. And that's a sad, sad reality. How many people have been robbed of the ability to think correctly? What is our goal and our focus in our life? And they which fell among thorns are they who heard and are going their way are choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And they yield no fruit. And, and many of our faithful perhaps would say rightly that they are not concerned with the riches of the world. And uh, to what extent that's true, that's between them and God. But certainly the greater bulk of them are. They are distracted with the fears, the worries, and the anxieties of this life. They are. They are as fearful as the pagans out there. They are as anxious as the pagans out there. They are stressed and worried. They live a life of, of hurry and worry. The two seem to go together. Hurry and worry. Always fearful. Uh, Over-excessive in their their fears of what might happen, what might be, this or that thing. God, says St. John Vianna, commands us to pray, but he forbids us to worry. And yet we spend so much time in fear and worry. St. Gregory the Great explains that there are two things that our Lord links with riches, cares and pleasures, because they both burden the mind with anxiety and weaken it through overabundance of delights. But because pleasure and anxiety do not blend, now they are tormented with concern for their possessions, and again they are softened by self-indulgence to excess. 
But on the contrary, says St. Cyril, when the divine word is poured into a soul free from all anxiety, then it strikes deep root and in due season comes to perfection. As long as we're not willing to let go of our fears, our anxieties and our worries, then we don't really trust in God. We trust in ourselves. We trust in our, our abilities, our possessions, our talents. And they're all limited. And so we'll always be worrying. What if this? What if that? Uh, so many things people worry about, stress about. And at the end of the day, those things, they don't matter. Even if they did happen, they don't matter if we don't have the grace of God. And if it takes away our peace, I hate to say it, sometimes it's better we don't know. Sometimes it's better we don't know what's happening. If it's going to rob us from our peace, if we're not prepared to receive that information, then it's better that we don't know it. Don't go looking for it. Um, because it's a danger to our soul. Our duty is to be at peace, to trust in God. The God who looked after me yesterday, who looks after me today, is going to look after me tomorrow. But we are too often stressed. Come to me all your labour and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Our Lord is our, our rest and our repose. And I think today, really, because we are so distracted, we are so worried, we are so stressed, we are made to somewhat feel guilty if we do rest. And even when we do rest, we find it difficult to rest and reflect and pray and think. There are very few people in the world today that even think anymore. And you take in the past, scientists in the past are unlike many of the scientists today. Scientists in the past actually were generally, the greatest amongst them, were all speculative scientists. In other words, most of them didn't know how to run a, a, a test in a lab. They knew how to think about the ideas, which later somebody else who could do the tests in a lab would put into effect. Like, for example, the, the well-known uh, scientist who was uh, you know, reputed to have built the atomic bomb, Oppenhauer, but not that he actually built it himself. He wouldn't know how. But people don't tell you that there were over 6,000 scientists helping him. Like, why do you need 6,000 scientists? But some knew how to run the tests. Others just knew how to think. What about uh, if this happens? What about if that happens? Uh, what do we need to combine? What elements do we need to combine? How much pressure we do, need, do we need? All these thinkers. And how do these things actually work? Good luck if people understand that today. People almost don't know how to think anymore. They have to push buttons. They know how to see things and move things. But to think on a deep level, there are very few and far between today. And that's a sad reality. You know, one author I was reading the other day, he said before the invention of the light bulb, the average person had about 11, 11 hours of sleep. Today, how many people spend hours and hours all night scrolling on the internet for pointless things, entertainment, whatever, and are barely able to think the next day when they wake up, tired, worn out, exhausted, and they just run themselves in this, this empty routine, uh, stressed, anxious, worried, uh, perturbed, and some stresses I can understand are real. They get the stress of their finances, <clears throat> concern for their children, but at the end of the day, they all belong to God. Uh, and this is not the solution. The solution is to have the Catholic perspective. And here the imitation of Christ gives us this. This is the greatest wisdom, it says, to seek the kingdom of heaven through contempt of the world. It's vanity, therefore, to seek 
and trust in riches that perish. It is vanity also to court honour and to be puffed up with pride. It is vanity to follow the lusts of the body and the desire things for which uh, severe punishment later must come. It is vanity for long, uh, to wish for a long life and to care little about a well-spent life. It is vanity to be concerned with the present only and not to make provisions for the things to come. It is vanity to love what passes quickly and not to look ahead where eternal joys abide. Our perspective must be the world to come. Grace, God, truth, justice. The saints often, you know, made vows of poverty. Why? So they can take themselves away from one less burden in this world. So they can be all the more focused on the things of God. And you, in this world, may not be able to make a vow of poverty. But you can replace that vow (coughs) of poverty with what the saints did follow in principle. And that is to be stingy with themselves uh, and generous with others. The saints were all stingy with themselves and generous with others. And many of us, including myself, you often know, you'd visit sometimes these older people, very old, and maybe they were often very poor. But they were very generous when you came over as a guest. They, they would put out everything. The best cutlery, the best food. They would need the food when they were on themselves, alone. But when a guest came, they brought out everything because it was their way of honouring our Lord, our Lord and the guest. They were generous with others and stingy with themselves. This was the old school mentality of Catholic hospitality. We are generous with others but we are stingy for ourselves. We don't look to buy things and do things that make us feel better or or be better, but we do what we can to be that hospital, kind, generous friend to those around us. And I I think in this regard, it's very simple. Just be to others everything that you would want them to be to you. Be kind, loving, affectionate, generous. Uh, You know, I often feel, uh, uh, you know, I, I think if I can be honest, Sometimes you have a spouse who has to be heroic in living with their partner, who's often down, frowning, stingy, grumpy, angry, never showing gratitude. I think they're heroic, these people. Uh, it's a hard life. Imagine having to live with that all your life. Misery. But, and, then, and then bearing to them a generous, cheerful attitude. That's, that's real sanctity. Uh, because they are being unto them everything that they would want them to be unto them. And our Lord says, do unto others what you would want them to do to you. And if you do that, then you've understood. Then you've thought rightly. Then you judge rightly. Then you act rightly. Because your focus is not uh, counting the cost, uh, looking at the way they treated you, what they did to you, but how you can be Christ unto them. That's the beautiful spirit of the saints. And here St. Francis de Sales gives some deeper insight for us to be able to think rightly and as a consequence judge rightly. And he gives a few beautiful examples. But he he says our first principle must be then to keep our focus upon the goodness of God. And we must then reflect that in our lives, the goodness of God. God is good. We must reflect that. How blessed are those souls, he says, who amidst the vicissitudes of every kind always keep their thoughts and affections fastened on eternal goodness so as to honour and cherish it forever. God, 
is what we must cherish. He says, Our Lord himself suffered all sorts of torments, and death itself for love of his Father and for love of us. And yes, love did all this. It is love also that entered a soul to make it happily die to itself and to live again in God, strips it of all human desires and self-esteem, which as closely fixed to our spirit as skin to the flesh. At length, it denudes that soul of its dearest affections, such as those it had for spiritual consolation, devout exercises and perfect virtue, which seem to be the very life of a devout soul. Yes, the same Lord who makes us desire those virtues at the beginning of our course and makes us practice them amidst all the eventualities is he who takes away affection for virtue and all spiritual exercises to make that end with tranquility, purity and simplicity. We may have affection for nothing but the good pleasure of his divine majesty. And here he gives two beautiful examples from scripture. First, he gives the example of Judith, who is, uh, in the Old Testament, a prefigurement of Our Lady. He says, Judith, uh, the beautiful and chaste, she kept her costly festival robes stored away in a closet, but had no liking for them, and never wore them during her widowhood, except at the time when God's inspiration, uh, she went out to destroy Holofernes. Thus, in like manner, Although we have learned virtuous practices, we must not place our affection in them or in the affection for them, except only in so far as we know that such is God's good pleasure. Just as Judith always wore mourning garments, except on that occasion when God willed that she be dressed up with pomp, so that we must also remain peacefully clothed in clothing with an abject mind uh, of our imperfections, and infirmities, unless God raises us up to the practice of excellent actions. God would make use of this woman, and she would dress up, and she would look extremely beautiful, dazzled everybody, and even Heliphanes, this leader uh, of the enemy's army. And she would use that to achieve God's will, which was literally to cut off his head. Uh, Our God is the God of armies. And again, he gives another example which is even more profound but is so more difficult for us. That is of the prophet Isaiah. He says, uh, uh, God commanded the prophet Isaiah to strip himself completely naked. And so he did. And he went about preaching in this way for three days. Then when uh, the time set for him by God had passed, he put on his clothes back again. We too, he says, must strip ourselves of all affections both little and great, and make a frequent examination of our hearts to see if it is truly ready to divest itself of all its garments, as Isaiah did. Then, at the proper time, we must take up again the affection suitable to the service of charity, so that we may die stripped upon the cross with our divine Saviour and afterwards rise again with him in the new man. And that's a very beautiful example. You know, St. Paul kind of sums it up even better. He says, we live in the world as though possessing all things and yet having nothing. Having nothing and yet possessing all things. How is that possible? We don't place our affection upon what we possess or even our virtues, but upon who it is that we love. And they, these things make us, make us not indifferent 
Our Lord was not indifferent in the gospel. He wept out of love for his people. Uh, the saints were not indifferent. They were not cold. They were joyful, cheerful, loving, kind. They felt all the pains of those around them. And they looked for ways to alleviate them in whatever service they could render. And this is, this is somebody who thinks rightly. This is somebody who judges rightly. This is somebody who is the friend of God. And so let us conclude with the beautiful prayer of St. Ignatius who sums up this sentiment quite profoundly. Take, O Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I own and all I have you gave to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Dispose of it according to your will. Give me your love and grace, and this is enough for me. In the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen.